This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Bill Pollack. Society has been puzzled for centuries as to why we sleep. WashU in St. Louis is conducting studies to try to crack the code. Joining Cameron Connor is Keith Hengen. He's an assistant professor of biology at WashU. The question of why we sleep has been poked at for well over a century. And there have been a lot of theories like to hide from predators or metabolic conservation. And these things, at least in my view, are fairly weak. They don't they don't hold water. Um, and there was a Bill DeMent, the sort of father of American sleep medicine. He founded the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, et cetera, et cetera, sort of big name guy. He died recently, but somebody asked him before he died, uh, why do we sleep? And he had this kind of snarky answer. He sort of shrugged and said, I don't know, to, to reduce sleepiness. And I think that sort of sums up, you know, it's not that we don't know that sleep is really important and that it does a lot of things, but the kind of central component of wh- what is it restoring? Why is it necessary? What's the kind of fundamental kernel of why we sleep? Nobody knows. Nobody knows at all. So I think if you break it down from a first principles perspective, though, it has to do it, it has to have something to do with how your brain fundamentally works, right? So think about everything. So if I ask you, what's your name? You'll say... Cameron Connor. Cameron Connor, right. Mm-hmm. So you don't have a Cameron neuron in your brain. Yeah. Like for you to hear that, that question, those, you know, the, this is coming through through wires, but you have kind of waves of compressed and rarefied air hit your ear, you turn that into action potentials, and you have all of this signaling through neurons. You could assume that there's going to be hundreds of millions to billions of neurons that are involved in simply understanding what I've just asked you and beginning to formulate a motor response to say that. Mm-hmm. And the, the wild thing is that that really complex interaction unfolds like that, just snap of fingers, milliseconds, and you're never going to get it wrong. Like You will never hear that and respond, Susan, right? And, and you'll do this for decades and decades and decades and decades. Mm-hmm. So you have, and this is, I think, the core of my lab's interest and what brought us to the sleep thing. So the, the, the really phenomenal achievement that biology has um, kind of offered us with, with, with brains, especially human brains or vertebrate brains, is computational reliability, right? Like memory doesn't mean anything. Language doesn't mean anything. Motor control, recognizing your family, none of that means anything if it's not intrinsically reliable. Does that make sense, right? Like if you learn if you if you if you learn how to move your legs, you're like, okay, cool, I got it, I can run. And then a lion comes after you, you try to move your legs, you start flailing your arms, you're dead, right? So there's kind of an evolutionary incentive for that whatever it is your brain is computing, it's gotta be reliable. But that doesn't really hold up very well because all the little bits and pieces that make up a brain fall apart. They drift, they decay, right? And then learning is twisting and changing those screws all the time. So you kind of have all of these forces of um of, of, of disassembly acting on the brain, and yet you still know your name for decades and decades and decades on end. And so we thought about this for a while and realized that sleep is really, really well poised to fix that problem every day, to effectively say, okay, how far has the system drifted? And to bring it back to that set point. And so the, the, the big step I think that we took is instead of looking for it to be, you know, like a single molecule, like this protein builds up during wake, mm-hmm. and then it goes down during sleep. Is to say, well, let's think about it more like a computer, right? Let's try to look at whether the computer's operating system is getting tuned and fixed, right? So rather than looking at just one bit or piece of it, let's look at the entire operation of the thing. And so that's exactly what my grad student, Ifan, did. Um, 
so I'm, I'm like totally monologuing on you right now. So oh, step over the question anytime you want. But he basically worked with some theoretical physicists and figured out like a plausible operating system. It's this idea called criticality. And so he found show that you can measure this, that animals seem to sort of be close to this critical point, which is um, sort of maximize its optimal for thinking, computing, solving problems. Mm-hmm. And then he studied that for weeks in these animals and found that when they're awake for too long, or not even too long, which is as they're awake, the system just kind of randomly drifts away from that critical point, and then sleep brings it right back to that. So that's kind of the... Sure. So, there you go. That, yes. that, was, that was a small rabbit hole for you. So to basically comprise what you're talking about, and for anyone who's just now tuning in, no worries, just search Show Me Today wherever you get your podcast. This is Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri. I'm Cameron Connor. We are here speaking about the age-old question with a WashU assistant professor in biology, Keith Hangen. We've been talking about the age-old question, why do we sleep? I don't yeah. want to say that it's a biological reset, but what, what technically would you summarize that answer as? I think it's a, it's, it's a, it's a reset of, of an emergent property in a biological right. system, right? So, mm-hmm. so rather than, than, than the biology of it being concerned about a molecule or a gene, somehow the system is sensing and concerned with how molecules and genes and neurons are acting together to produce computation, right? Because again, like your name, your sense of self isn't contained in one neuron, it's contained in the interaction of a large network. And so sleep, instead of being concerned with the bits and pieces, sleep is concerned with that emergent output from the thing. Okay. And we think that's, that's, that that's, I would say this, sorry, like that would be a really audacious thing to be like, ah, oh, we solved sleep in one paper. But I, I, I do think that what, what Ifan, my grad student again, has put forth is a, is a resonant and plausible answer to the question. And, and so we'll see, we'll see. People have to follow up on this. It's gotten a lot of traction very quickly. It's cool. Um, but I hope it replicates. I hope it holds up in other people's hands because it, it could be an answer to that central question. Okay, and then let, let's talk about what put words to the paper. So, so, so the study exactly, how long did it take? What about the collaboration of it? What were the subjects involved? What about that? I got drawn to this idea of criticality back when I was a postdoc in Boston, probably 10 years ago now, because there's been, for a long time, people have recognized that stabilizing the activity of neurons, again, it's the basis of sensation, perception, cognition, behavior, that, that stabilization is non-trivial. Like it's, it's a really, really big problem. It's gotta be solved. And um, I used to work on it on a much kind of smaller level, like individual cells. And I had an idea that it, 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 the place where it has to matter is at the emergent output of the brain. And so when I got here to Wash U, this is a phenomenal community. So here we are, Missouri. And um, it's super collaborative. I started having lunch and hanging out with a theoretical physicist named Ralph Wessel. And he knew a lot about this criticality stuff. And so I don't know. I mean, it sounds kind of cheesy, but it's really the kind of back of the napkin thing. It just came up over coffee and having a beer and chatting and drawing things out on whiteboards. And we started to say, you know what, I, I, I think this is where it's got to be happening. And so in terms of how long the actual study took, systems neuroscience is slow. It gets slow because you've got to like build all these microelectronics and these complicated surgeries. The animals recover and then the animals live happily for a long time. And we're tracking all of these neural dynamics and behavior, sleep, wake, etc. So, but then we got hit with the pandemic. So I think that it probably took Ifan four years to go from like his first times, first moments working with these animals to where we are now. 
but I suspect he's, he's really good at what he does. I bet he could have hit it in three years if we didn't have a pandemic. Show me the day. We're back on Show Me Today. We continue our conversation with Keith Hengen, an assistant professor of biology at Wash U, on why we sleep. Here's Cameron Connor. So let's talk about the subjects. You, you were mentioning animals. After reading the article, I, I'm pretty sure it was rats, correct? Right. We used we used juvenile rats. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Moving on from it, I, I, I guess in the, while, while observing the rats, basically, were you purposely just letting them, since they're in their juvenile state, were you just kind of letting them sleep when they chose to? Were you giving some too, too little sleep, too much sleep to see how it would impact? What, what about that? That is a very good question, my friend. Um, so... One of my critiques of the sleep field writ large, some people do it really well, but I think as a community, it's hard to record activity, especially sort of neural stuff for a very, very long period of time. So people tend to just use a few hours of the day and say, you know, so, so rats are tend to be awake during the, the night. So they might, people might use four hours during the night period and call that subjective waking. But the problem there is that animal behavior is much more fragmented than human behavior. So at 3 a.m., you're probably asleep most night. Like, I'll bet you I can be 99% confident. Unless, do you have a small infant in your house? I do not. I do have a dog. Okay, so right. Besides that, okay. no. <laughs> 3 a.m., I'll give you 98% confidence you're going to be asleep. You can't say the same thing about a rat or a mouse. And so we wanted to take advantage of that variability because the other issue you run into is circadian, circadian processes, right? So not only does sleep try to sort of fix this operating system, there's also a circadian drive to sleep, independent of the of the homeostatic side. And so by watching these animals for weeks, you end up with like all combinations, like pick a time, say 4 a.m. If I watch for long enough, I can find a period at 4 a.m. where the animal was spazzing out and hyper. I could watch a few more days. I find 4 a.m. where it was you know deep asleep. So we can kind of use natural variability as its own form of experimental design. Um and then we did do an intervention in the middle of the experiment where we kept the animals, we extended their waking periods. It wasn't sort of like a really hard sleep deprivation, but we wanted to sort of assess the causality of this, right? Just so it's not purely correlational. I probably could answer that in like two sentences, but I chose to talk for a minute, so no, I'm sorry. I like it. I mean, it's a very integral part of, of the process. So, I mean, it's, it's highly interesting stuff. So I, I guess the next point where I'll turn this to is what's next with this? Do you, are you going to continue with rats? Do you hope to choose new subjects, whether it's maybe eventually human testing or if you choose different animals? What about that? Again, very good question. So I think we're going to bifurcate here. So, well, maybe, maybe there's sort of three ways we're going to go. So I think applying this to humans is an immediate low hanging fruit. And so we're collaborating with some folks over here at the WashU Med School who have um, depth electro recordings in human children who have other pathologies, but we can get kind of their control data and get similar insights into brain dynamics across multiple days of waking and sleep. So we can we can ask the question that would be terrifying, which is, did we just happen to find a caveat of being a rat, or is this actually a fundamental principle of how brains work? Right. So mm-hmm. needs to be answered. Um, and then the second direction I want to go with this is switching from rats to mice because we have a lot more genetic control over mice and we can actually put causal mutations into a mouse gene to replicate a disease. And so I think that the same way you think about what's sleep or wake doing, we've turned that lens to the question of things like Alzheimer's disease. And in the lab, I think we struggle with the concept that a disease could be a misfolded protein. Well, that's not a disease. It's it's, It's a misfolded protein. It could cause a disease, but a disease 
Have you ever met somebody with a, with with dementia? Yes. yes right. So it's it's not it's not hard it's not hard to um to figure this out. When you when you talk to somebody with dementia, the, the disease is the failure of neural computation. Whether it's aphasia, language problems, whether it's you know family recognition, whether it's emotional regulation, right? So it's you don't care about the protein; you care about the the end result of that, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think I think that that critical operating system that sleep seems to be restoring all the time in a healthy animal. My gut instinct and our a lot of our preliminary data show that's the thing that's corroded by disease, right? And so so no matter whether you're talking it's Alzheimer's disease or Huntington's disease or sort of any of these other ways in, when you have that kind of global, long-lasting just failure of systems computation, again, whether it's memory, language, emotion, it comes back to that same fundamental principle. It's the same operating system. And interestingly, one of the most sort of ubiquitous and early symptoms of dementia is dysregulated sleep. Okay, got so so basically what we're talking about when when collaborating with this is basically when we're talking about sleep, it's you know we were basically trying to find a way to describe it not as necessarily a biological reset, but at least a biological restoration is maybe a correct way to to describe that. And please correct me if I'm wrong, but so basically yeah. it's a, a disease that occurs, whether it be Alzheimer's or dementia, it's basically an ill it might at least start from Ill- irregulated sleep that maybe the brain does on its own that basically starts to make you go through Groundhog Day, something something like that. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. I think I think I think. How about this? If you drive a car in the wrong gear, say you drive stick, and you drive a car in second gear for years, you're going to end up with a bunch of metal shards in your oil pan. You're going to destroy the engine, right? And th- the problem isn't the metal shards. Right? You could diagnose it that way. You go, hey, look at these chunks of metal. That shouldn't be there. The problem is that you're driving in the wrong gear. And so what we think might be happening is that Alzheimer's probably starts 20 years before it's detectable. Right? You start having a little buildup of metal shards, and the system is just sitting there running in the wrong gear. And so it's probably like a two-way conversation that you start getting those little metal shards. It actually pushes the system further and further from the right gear, which then you know, this horrible feedback loop causes you to produce more metal shards and the whole thing kind of winds up. And so that's where that's where the state of that field is at, because we think that it's not that we can't treat Alzheimer's or cure it. It's that by the time we know it's there, it's just too late. You've already destroyed the engine. And so hopefully by being able to track these types of changes in the operating system and study of criticality, we can have a much, much, much earlier insight to these problems and potentially stop the damage before it can build up and become devastating. Yeah. And yeah, sleep is kind of the, the sort of nexus of that whole process. Okay, and uh, that makes complete sense. So as far as, I, I think we've gathered overall the next step. So you're also looking at potentially transitioning to mice. You're also talking about the potential of human interaction as well. When is this, is this going on as we speak? Is it going to be happening this year? What, what about that? It's, it, I mean, right through that wall, man, we've got, got a, a whole team of amazing <laughs> young people who are, just driven and passionate and fun and creative. We've kind of created, we've kind of built like a, more of like a startup environment compared to sort of a traditional wet lab. And um, yeah, it's 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 great. And I feel very lucky to be able to work with these guys, but that's exactly what they're doing right now. Okay, absolutely. Well, I hope at some point this year then, whenever there are new breakthroughs that come through, which I'm sure there will be, especially with all the amazing minds working to solve this age old question, I would look forward to having you back on to give us some updates. All right. Awesome. It was so wonderful to meet you. And thanks for uh, thanks for, I don't know, giving me the chance to share what we do.
Yep, absolutely. And for anyone who's just now tuning in, no worries. Just search Show Me Today wherever you get your podcast. This is Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri. I'm Cameron Connor. We are here speaking about the age-old question with a WashU assistant professor in biology, Keith Hangen. We've been talking about the age-old question, why do we sleep? Getting answers along the way, but still a lot of work to be done, and that's what they're doing right now here at WashU. Once again, Keith, thank you very much for your time here on Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri. Anytime. Thank you.